Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Welcome back to Park Avenue Synagogue Podcasts. We take conversations about the community, about the Jewish community, about the community of humanity, conversations of urgency and of relevance, oftentimes, and today is such a day where we are hearing from someone from within the Park Avenue Synagogue family, someone who has been a a devoted member of the community since long before I arrived in the community, but we've developed a wonderful friendship, um, and I am a deep admirer of Dr. Georgette Bennett um, for all of her work, and what a pleasure it is to welcome Georgette to the podcast. Dr. Bennett is an award-winning sociologist, widely published author, popular lecturer, and former broadcast journalist. She is an innovative and entrepreneurial leader, an active philanthropist focusing on conflict resolution and intergroup relations. In 2013, Dr. Bennett founded the Multi-Faith Alliance for Syrian Refugees and has since worked to raise awareness and mobilize $300 million of humanitarian aid on behalf of more than 3 million Syrian war victims. In 1992, she founded the Tannenbaum Center for Interreligious Understanding, the go-to organization for combating religious prejudice. She's also a co-founder of the Global Covenant of Religions and Global Covenant Partners, which focuses on delegitimizing the use of religion to justify violence and extremism. Bennett served in the U.S. State Department Religion and Foreign Policies Initiatives Working Group on Conflict Mitigation tasked with developing recommendations for the U.S. Secretary of State on countering religion-based violence. She's been awarded the AARP Purpose Prize for her work with MFA and recently received an Extraordinary Women Award from the 92nd Street Y. In 2021, Bennett was included in Forbes 50 Over 50 Women of Impact list and cited together with Condoleezza Rice, not a Park Avenue member, and Susan Rice as women who helped shape the course of modern American foreign policy and human rights. Her book, Thou Shalt Not Stand Idly By, How One Woman Confronted the Greatest Humanitarian Conflict of Our Time, was published in late 2021, and her most recent book, Religious Size, um, co-authored with Nobel Peace Prize co-recipient Jerry White, was released in November 22. Welcome, Dr. Bennett, to Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. Well, thank you, Rabbi Cosgrove. I'm honored to have been invited, and now all I have to do is live up to that introduction. That oh, you made. It, is, <laughs> it, is, uh, it is great to see you in the pews, um, and people can't see us, but they can listen to us. Um, as if we're just kibitzing in the pews right now. Um, but it's great to see you, and it's always great to see you. And, and I, you know, I have sitting in front of me um, two books and plus one. I have your book, Thou Shalt Not Stand Idly By, 
how one woman confronted the greatest humanitarian crisis of our time, and I have Religious Side, your newest book, Confronting the Roots of Anti-Religious Violence. And then the plus one book I have is um, the story of your late husband, Rabbi Mark Tannenbaum, the untold story of the rabbi who stood up for human rights, racial justice, and religious reconciliation. So I want to start with the personal, because you, you have a global presence and impact, but I, I suspect that within your own story, within the, the legacy of, of Rabbi Tannenbaum of Blessed Memory, um, there's a deeply personal element to your work. Could you share with us sort of how you came uh, to your, your calling? I've had three major sources of inspiration. The first one is the Holocaust. The second one is my late husband, Rabbi Mark Tannenbaum. And the third, this is not an order of importance, my Jewish values. So I'll start at the beginning. I'm a child of the Holocaust. Uh, both of my parents survived the camps and all of the horrors. Um, my father was Polish, my mother Hungarian. I was born in Budapest uh, very soon after the war. The persecution did not stop after the Soviet Union liberated Hungary and after the Iron Curtain dropped. My mother, for reasons that I never learned, was then thrown into Soviet prisons after being in um, concentration camp. So it was very clear that if we stayed in Hungary, um, the persecution wouldn't end. So we escaped. We escaped to France and had to wait a few years before we could get our papers to emigrate to the U.S. And uh, arrived in New York as stateless refugees. In fact, one of my most precious possessions is the passenger manifest from the Ile de France, which is the ship that brought us to New York. It lists the passengers next to their names, their nationalities, and next to our three names. It just said stateless, the only passengers that had that designation. So that's the early part of the story. The later part of the story is my late husband, who was a pioneer in the whole field of interreligious relations at a time when that was not a popular thing to do, and also a well-known human rights activist. And one of his main passions and commitments was refugees. So for decades, he was on the executive committee of the International Rescue Committee and helped to organize uh, the international rescue effort for the Vietnamese boat people. In fact, on his missions to Southeast Asia, he literally was pulling boat people out of the water after their flimsy boats collapsed to save them from drowning and pulling them to shore while the people on shore just wanted to push them back, get rid of them. And all that kept going through his head was the St. Louis. And when the Syrian crisis happened, the St. Louis 
kept going through my head as well, along with Leviticus 19.16, thou shalt not stand idly by while the blood of your neighbor cries out from the earth. Now, it may seem counterintuitive um, for me, a Jew, and somebody who's passionate about Israel, to consider Syria my neighbor and um, feel that I have an obligation to Syrians because after all, they are uniformly indoctrinated to hate Israel, to hate Jews. They believe that Israel wants to, Israelis want to kill them, steal their land. Um, but one of the things that I discovered in the process of working with my sworn enemy is how the moment you begin to work together and see the humanity in each other, all of that falls away. And that, of course, is perhaps the most important legacy that I have inherited from Mark. Thank you. Um, I, I am so deeply moved um, by every element of that story. As a rabbi, obviously, the, 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 the Jewish ethic of not standing idly by, um, it, it also seems that within uh, your own personal story, Georgette, if I can call you Georgette, uh, is uh, that to know the heart of the stranger, for you were once a stranger in a strange land, um, and that that is what animates uh, the, our, our concern for the other, um, even as you're describing that the other may not be our friend, um, but the human condition is a universal one. And I, I and that, that must have, so, so tell me, uh, to the specifics of, uh, in, in 2013, when you founded the Multi-Faith Alliance for Syrian Refugees, I remember that moment, I remember there was a baby that was washed up on the. Sh I mean, there, there, it was everywhere, and um, and and all everyone was talking about the collapse of Syria, the the refugee crisis, um, and 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 then and and now, uh, well, let, let's do it one step at a time. Um, how what what does the MFA, the Multi Faith Alliance, actually do? Um, and, and tell us how, um, who, who, who is the planning table to address the humanitarian crisis um, of Syrian refugees? Well, before, the multi, before I founded the Multi-Faith Alliance, um, I went to the Consul General of Israel in New York, Ido Aharoni, because in this crisis, I saw not only an opportunity to save lives, but to build bridges between sworn enemies. And Ido, who of course is uh, the brandmeister of Israel, totally got this. So I thought that I could connect some dots and have the International Rescue Committee, which had a lot of boots on the ground in Jordan, where so many of the Syrian refugees had fled, that perhaps Israel could work through the multi-faith alliance in delivering aid, especially given Israel's 
expertise in trauma treatment. And uh, I got the two of them together and they met and they decided they would do a pilot project having to do with just that, trauma treatment. Two weeks later, I got a call from the president of the International Rescue Committee who had heard from his staff on the ground in Jordan. And they said, if we are in any way seen as working with Israel, our lives are in danger. So there I was with egg all over my face. So what now? Well, if this couldn't be an Israeli response, it could be a Jewish communal response because I wasn't seeing one. So I spoke with Alan Gill and he too. He was at the JDC then, right? He the was joint? head of the JDC, the joint, as we call it. And he too immediately got it. He said, you know, you're absolutely right. We have to do something. So we initiated something called the Jewish Coalition for Disaster Relief. And at that time, I had been working closely with Prince Zaid of Jordan. At the time, he was the Jordanian uh, ambassador to the UN. And he said, you know, why don't you, under the auspices of the Tannenbaum Center, scale this up to a multi-faith response? And that's how the Multi-Faith Alliance was born, with these Jewish organizations at the core of it. So we now have more than 100 partner organizations, and we have delivered not $300 million worth of aid, but as of now, $400 million worth of aid, most of it directly into Syria. And a lot of that was done in close cooperation with the IDF, with Israel. And that, I don't know how deeply- no, that, That's, I imagine, not in the headlines that it was happening with the Israeli Defense Forces. Well, not initially, but eventually it became a front page story above the fold in the New York Times. Because eventually we did work our way back to Israel and building bridges between sworn enemies. And that is actually one of the most gratifying parts of this work for me. Because the way that it worked, one of the things the Multi-Faith Alliance does is deliver humanitarian aid. In fact, now we also have a primary medical facility in Raqqa. And uh, excuse me, we have a, an office in Raqqa and a primary medical facility in Northeast Syria. So that's one of the things we do. We also do advocacy work and counter messaging because there's so much demonization of refugees that goes on. The way that we started doing our humanitarian aid deliveries was Israel shares a border with the four countries most affected by the Syrian crisis. And yet nobody, nobody was working through Israel to get aid. Now, Southwest Syria was entirely surrounded by regime forces, which means that aid was not getting through and it was difficult to access. But it was very easy to access from one place, and that was the Israeli side of the Golan Heights. So what we did was uh, by then we had 
a number of Syrian organizations who were part of the multi-faith alliance. And when the Golan Channel was opened up through Operation Good Neighbor in Israel, the very first ones to take advantage of that channel were, guess what, the Syrian organizations. So if Syrian organizations were willing to deliver aid through Israel, why not the humanitarian arm of the British government? Why not other governments? So the way it would work... Are the other gov governments uh, involved? I mean, is there... And, and this sort of leads to the, well, the next part of this is, where are we now? You know, uh, it, it's not lost on me. That, you know, I remember speaking to my children about this when the terrible earthquake happened in Turkey and they were taking people out of the rubble and it, it really horrific, gruesome images um, just uh, this year, just uh, a month or two ago. Um, and I was just thinking, whatever we are seeing, what's happening in Syria must be 10 times worse. And I, I have no idea. I mean, what, what do we know? What, what's going on with the Syrian refugee crisis now? So borders have closed all over the place. Um, they are greatly resented in some of the countries that are hosting the largest numbers, like Jordan. 80% um, of Syria has descended into poverty. Um, the life expectancy has dropped by 20 years. Uh, the oppression is just as bad as it was. Um, the medical infrastructure has been largely destroyed because attacks on healthcare providers and medical facilities have been used as a weapon of war. Uh, the educational infrastructure is destroyed. Syrian children, uh, millions of them, have been out of school for years. Uh, the part of Syria that where we're working now is in the northeast and the northwest because the regime does not control those areas. So we're no longer working in the southwest because of a deconfliction agreement, uh, which was kind of a devil's bargain that Israel made with, with Russia, etc. The deal was made that they would close down the Golan Channel, Russia would take over the humanitarian aid, and Russia's part of the deal was it would keep Iran away from Israel's border. Well, of course, that hasn't happened. On the contrary, Hezbollah is all over the place now, right up at the border. And that was not the case before. So what we were doing at that time was cargo containers would arrive in the ports of Haifa and Ashdod, many of them containing goods from Syrian organizations. The IDF soldiers would pick up the containers and port transship them to the Golan Heights, and then under cover of dark, our partners on the ground in Syria, they would open the border, they would unload the trucks and distribute the goods in Syria. It's a real man bites dog story. So now there's no shared border, um, but we are still trying to keep 
the partnerships with Israel alive because it really did change hearts and minds in extraordinary ways. So we are now bringing Israeli technology into northern Syria where there are terrible water shortages. So we've been putting in water gen systems, which literally take moisture out of the air and convert it into clean water. And we're now working on bringing in Israeli waste management systems that convert wastewater into agricultural irrigation. Um, the earthquake is a disaster on top of a disaster. Um, we have been very active in bringing in aid, food, clothing, whatever is needed. We don't just send what, um, you know, what people... And when you say we, you're speaking here of the multi-faith alliance? Yes, yes. Okay. We, we don't just, you know, ask people, listen, please donate whatever you happen, whatever you can spare. We don't do that because much of that ends up being a total waste. What we do is we find out what is needed. We get lists of what is needed. We then source that. We get that donated. We ship it. We distribute it. And all of the aid, unlike a lot of the UN aid, gets to its intended recipients. Um, extraordinary. It seems I'm, I'm just listening and I'm, I'm thinking of of all the other hotspots of, of the world, and we're going to get to them in a moment, but that part of your work is about um, stamina and, and fighting against people's uh, attention span, that, um, that there is, you know, the, the news for appropriately has been about Ukraine, um, just uh, this, uh, you know, of late, our attention is in Sudan, and it seems like that uh, whatever fragile uh, peace is, is no longer uh, there, that, um, that, you know, the news cycle comes and goes uh, and, and people's uh, empathy uh, shifts. And we're all subject to this. But um, how, do, how, do you, how do you keep people focused on, in, let's say, the, 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 the Syrian refugee crisis or... Um, or how do you let people know that there are multiple fires that need to be um, tended to? By staying very tightly focused myself. First of all, um, you know, you mentioned earlier how everybody was talking about Syria. Um, that was only the case when you saw a toddler washed up on shore or a couple of Syrian refugee children huddled together. Unfortunately, and this is one of the reasons that I got involved, the silence of the world was deafening, just as the silence of the world was deafening during the Holocaust. So because of, you know, disaster fatigue, it's, it's important that I and we stay tightly focused. And in any of the areas in which I have operated as a change agent, I've followed a very simple formula. And that formula is 
find an entry point. And in the case of Syria, my entry point was the Jewish community. Identify a gap. And in the case of Syria, the gap was Southwest Syria, which was very hard to access. And then find something doable with which to fill that gap. And the something that was doable was our operations over the Golan Heights. And then stay tightly focused and never let yourself look at the big picture. Because if you look at the big picture, you get paralyzed into inaction. You've got to stay focused on that doable piece. Now, now we're going to, um, and, and I think that gets into the, the, the message for those who are listening to this podcast. In, in your latest book, and I'm going to ask you two questions, and I, I think that's all we'll have time for, to the question of what can be done if someone wants to be engaged. You, 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 you divide it, you talk about different responses to humanitarian crises of, of top-down, middle-out, and bottom-up. Are, are these, these are different muscle groups. How, how, if people want to be involved, how, 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 how is this a way to frame our response? So that top-down, middle-out, bottom-up uh, was a specific strategy for addressing religiousside. Religiousside is a highly targeted form of humanitarian abuse that not only tries to wipe out the people who practice a religion, but also their habitats, their sacred spaces, their entire cultural heritage. In other words, to wipe so we're, out- We're talking about the Yazidis, the uh, Myanmar, the, the Uyghurs. The Uyghurs, the, Uyghurs, the Rohingya, and, and arguably the Holocaust was the first modern religious side, but it's not entirely clear that that's what it was. Um, so the difficulty is that the international bodies recognize four kinds of human rights violations. You have war crimes that goes back to the 1800s. Then you have crimes against humanity and genocide, which became codified in the wake of the Holocaust. Then you have aggression. And then you have one that is not in international law, but the International Criminal Court recognizes it, and that's ethnic cleansing. The problem is that while religiousside incorporates all of these, they don't cover religiousside. Religiousside goes even beyond that. So the reason for the top-down, middle-out, bottom-up is because the top-down, which is where the international bodies are, there, there are gaps, and religious side slips through those gaps. And because of that, you have this destruction, this murder, murder of a religion, happening in plain sight. And the murderers get away with it because of they slip through the cracks of international law. So if international law is not going to be able to deal with it. Then you need to look at other kinds of remedies. 
And one of them, especially in the case of religious side, which is so important, is the particular role of religious leaders, especially when you're dealing with religion against a religion. Because so often, this is based on toxic religious texts. So while ironically, all of the great religions of the world have core values of taking care of the stranger, uh, love, peace, etc. They are also the source of a lot of the violence. And that comes from something that Mark always called group narcissism. Mm. The idea that one's own religion holds a monopoly on truth, because that then leads to apocalyptic thinking which divides the world into the children of light and the children of darkness. Well, once you've got children of darkness and you can start demonizing them with hate speech, that dehumanizes them. And once they're dehumanized, it's, it's a very short step to going from verbal violence to physical violence. So, that's why religious leaders are so very important in terms of interpreting text so that people understand what are the universal aspects of the shaping values and yes um, and being a voice yeah it it comes full circle from mark's vision of of empathy you know is is religion going to be used as an instrument of empathy or as an instrument of 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 dehumanizing the other yeah you know, that certainly, that inspires me. Uh, I'm not where I should be, um, but, uh, but we are all works in progress um, as far as um, using our pulpits um, to lessen the suffering of humanity. Georgette, uh, a final question for you, because it seems that you, you spend so much of your time in dark pockets of, of humanity. So, So what gives you hope, Georgette? What gives me hope is what I see happening when one intervenes in those dark spots of humanity. Um, I'll use Syria as an example, because when I see that we have been able to impact more than 3 million Syrian war victims, when I see that Al Jazeera picks up a story about Syrians who were working with Israelis and then bashes them as traitors, and then you look at the Al Jazeera Facebook page and you see that 90% of the com- comments in Arabic, because this is Al Jazeera Arabic, not Al Jazeera America, are bashing Al Jazeera for bashing these Syrians working with Israelis, and you're seeing comments like, um, at least Israelis are helping us, whereas all you do is close our borders. Or since when is it a crime to save Syrian lives? I mean, this is enormously gratifying, and it gives me tremendous hope. And I, in fact, do a lot of work that involves engagement with Arabs. And that gives me tremendous hope in terms of 
the changing perceptions and the changing realities on the ground. Georgette Bennett, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are an inspiration to us all. May you be strengthened by your work as it heals our world in such pain. Your two books, Thou Shalt Not Stand Idly By, How One Woman Confronted the Greatest Humanitarian Crisis of Our Time, as well as Religious Side, Confronting the Roots of Anti-Religious Violence. Very, very important, engaging, uh, and timely uh, books. Um, may you go from strength to strength, Georgette. Thank you so much. And thank you for the inspiration that you are. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah, Hallelujah.